0: Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from No Tall Vision, a patient-centric ophthalmic diagnostic services company extending age-related macular degeneration monitoring from the clinic to the home. Providing optometrists with remote diagnostic tools to support their patient care. Managed by the no Vision Diagnostic Clinic, the 4C Home program helps detect wet AMD conversion as early as possible.
1: My name is Damon Durker. I'm here with my colleagues to talk about AMD management and use of 4C home and the no Vision Diagnostic Clinic in particular. I am Director of Optometric Services at Eye Surgeons of Indiana and currently President of the Indiana Optometric Association. I've got three of my colleagues here from across the country, different practice types. I want to go ahead and introduce them before we get started into our conversation. Uh, Dr. Aydin, why don't you tell us about yourself, your practice, and your experience with the No Television Program.
2: Sure, Damon. Thanks everybody for having me join you uh, today. And uh, we practice in the Chicago area, in the suburbs of Chicago, practices uh, called North Suburban Vision Consultants, We're a group practice with uh, five ODs and three MDs. It is an OD-driven, OD-owned practice, um, and uh, multi-specialty practice, to be honest with you. And we do a lot of primary care, a lot of anterior segment disease. We do a lot of retina in terms of diagnostics and managing with uh, local uh, retina specialists as well. So as it relates to the topic for this evening, um, I think the perspective that we're gonna bring to the group is more of a primary care environment. Um, So I hope that that really does resonate with a lot of the folks who are listening to the podcast. Uh, We were involved with uh, Notel Vision for quite some time, actually, uh, probably even before they were called no-tile vision. Um, We've been utilizing the home 4C technology for years now and uh, have found it to resonate with our uh, approach in a comprehensive management of uh, age-related macular degeneration.
1: Thanks, Barry. I'm excited to have you here. And I think that primary care aspect really is one of the main points here is these patients are in our optometric clinics and we need to be providing the very best care that we can so that patients have good outcomes. Uh, Dr. Dorothy Hitchmith, uh let us know about uh, your experience with the technology and a little bit about your practice. Sure.
3: And again, thanks so much for having me. Um, It's really a privilege to be here uh, speaking with all of you and having the opportunity to share my experience um, with the technology that Notal has put out. So I've been in practice for 24 years. Um, I was the director of residency programs and chief of service. For 22 years at VA New England, my academic focus was on neuroretinal disease and systemic biomarkers. Um, and I actually had the privilege of working with the VA Dartmouth Outcomes Group, which is a nationally recognized program uh, at this point, looking to figure out you know, what are the things that we need to deliver to patients to improve their quality of life and outcomes. So that's been part of my soul um since my uh, academic days which didn't end all that long ago um i retired a couple years ago and um expanded my two location rural private practice Um, i have a healthcare consulting business as well um, so i have a keen interest in ophthalmic product development and and that sort of thing but um really working in a rural area for my entire practice uh, for my entire career quite frankly um means that I have to manage um, patients um, right up to the OR door or right up to the needle, as I I say, um, because there are just simply not enough ophthalmologists to to cover some of the more advanced disease patients. So yes, I do primary care all the time, but I also receive referrals from other ODs and quite frankly, even some other uh, ophthalmologists. And so we're seen as one of the practices that really um, is trying to do right by the patients in terms of prevention. And in that 's the mission at my practice is prevention of vision loss, uh, so really, no tall fits right in with with my own passion and in our, in our practice mission. And my first experience um, with the technology was actually before it even became part of um, the home 4 C. Uh, a Retina colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Jerome Sherman at NYU actually introduced me to the in-clinic version of this technology probably six to eight years ago. I don't even know exactly anymore. Um, so when I saw the um, much more developed home version of the technology. I was really, really excited because uh, I realized, oh my God, this is something that could really help patients.
1: Thank you, Dorothy. I think your uh, experience in various settings is gonna bring a lot to this conversation. I'm looking forward to hearing your experiences with Notal Vision and 4C Home. And finally, uh, Mary Beth Yaki, a little bit closer to me in Cincinnati, tell us a little bit about your practice and, you know, why and how long you've been using uh, 4C home uh, for your patients with AMD?
4: I love my practice, just like everybody else is passionate about their practice. Um, I have a very unique situation where I work at Cincinnati Eye Institute directly in the retina department. So at Cincinnati Eye Institute, we have approximately 100 doctors, um, approximately 80 ophthalmologists, and we're going on 20 optometrists plus and growing. Um, Privileged to be uh, in the retina group specifically. So I love no television and what it's brought to our practice. Um, and I've been using it now for approximately two years. 4C home devices really changed the way that I take care of my patients to help manage um, their early stages of macular degeneration. It really helps us to guide our patients on when they need to come in and um, it's really been game changing for us. I started actually honestly using it on my mother. So um, my first experience was with my mom and then uh, from there grew into using it for patients. Awesome,
1: looking forward to hear everyone's uh, experience with the technology and, and their patient success stories. And I think this is such a timely topic because optometry really can have a huge impact on patient outcomes when it comes to AMD. Mary Beth, I'm going to start with you with our first topic, really, because, you, you know, you're in a setting where you're working right along with the retina specialists and seeing patients having anti-VEGF injections. Why is early detection of AMD, when it converts from dry to wet, why is that, so, why is that so important when it comes to patient outcomes?
4: So it's so important um, to have early treatment. With what we have seen is the sooner you can get treatment with anti-VEGF on wet AMD, the sooner and the better the uh, vision will hopefully re- return to where we're hoping 2040, that functional vision. Um, we can't always achieve that, but the quicker that we get the treatment on board, the more likely we can keep from a fibrotic scar forming, which is really detrimental to the vision. So. Um, the sooner you catch the wet change, the better the the likelihood is is that we can actually stop with that um, fluid and maybe even with less number of treatments long-term.
1: No, I agree completely. And the reality is is we're not really doing a good job either in optometry or ophthalmology catching these patients early. If you look at the data, real-world data of what's happening, we know that when patients in the U.S. start getting their first anti-VEGF injection for wet AMD, their average acuity is 2080. Uh, Dorothy, we have all this great technology with OCT, with dark adaptation, this imaging has improved. Why, why is 2080, why, why are we at that point in the year 2020 where people are having lost six or seven lines of vision before they even get uh, treated for their wet AMD?
3: Thanks for um, actually saying that. Uh, You know, we have all this great advanced technology and, you know, I, I actually have a Zeiss concept office. So I've got all the latest bells and whistles that we know are important for early detection of macular degeneration, whether it's you know, FAF or OCTA. Um, but those tools are only good if we're actually examining the patient in the office. At least that's what we have available now. And so this really is an extension of advanced diagnostics to the patient home, right? I am obsessed at this point with continuous patient care and 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 no tall has really enabled that to happen you know you know as well as i do all the studies say that if you can catch the disease in its earliest stages and whatever acuity you start out with is likely to predict what your acuity is later at post treatment even with the most effective regimen anti vegf regimen that the patient's vision really isn't going to improve all that much um, the idea that we can catch somebody with 2025 20, 2030 20, vision and maintain them there versus 2080 is huge in terms of the patient's quality of life if it's their dominant eye if they're you know living a robust retirement um, maybe they're you know whatever it is that they're doing with their vision um, you know or, or even just a simple simple task it really doesn't matter it's just maintaining that functional vision that quality of life and that is the gap that this fills in you know the goal is to get the patient to the office so that we can do what we do with all of our advanced diagnostics but because we have two eyes so many patients don't realize that they're losing vision in in the other eyes you know uh, so yeah I, I this has just been a such a um i would say a comfort right you know mary beth talked about her own mom um i think about my grandmother who really is my inspiration for even getting into the field who lost her vision to macular degeneration and i'm like yeah we have got to do better and you know fast forward 25 years and here we are you know how exciting
1: yes we're we're here now but look, really one of our goals is to help our colleagues understand what's out there to help these patients because AMD is very unpredictable. We're seeing a patient every four to six months because they have intermediate disease. The patients that are lucky, if they convert, maybe they did that a week before they got into the office. What about those patients that I just saw and I'm not seeing them for another six months and something happens a month from now? You know, they're not gonna have a a problem that they're gonna notice for several months and probably have already lost vision and vision that we really can't recover in many cases. So I think having that safety net, that continuous monitoring that you said you're passionate about, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think that this is something that I, I'm hopeful that our optometric colleagues will adopt for these patients that are at the highest risk for progression to advanced disease. Let's uh, go back a few years because I know we've all been practicing even you know before 4C home, maybe even before OCT, most of us. But uh, Barry, in your practice, what are some traditional ways that you would monitor a patient uh, in between office visits if you've diagnosed them with AMD?
2: So thank you for asking that question. I'm going to just step back for just a moment and just uh, confirm what the other uh, participants said about that early diagnostic uh, ability and, and why things have not turned out the way we actually wanted them to. And surely science speaks and data speaks. And when we hear that the, the average acuity being 20, 80 before a diagnosis, that surely brings the point home. And, and we all in practice need to understand that. And we know uh, intuitively that when we examine a patient who has dry AMD, we know they have risks to convert to wet AMD and for their vision to suffer significantly Um, And we know that if we see them, whether it's every six months, every three months, or even once a year, we have no idea what goes on between the visits. Uh, What are the ways in which we've done it in the past? Obviously, utilization of Amsler grid has been the number one way, or just telling patients to please monitor their vision, look for any irregularities or distortions in their vision. And if there was ever a question, it's always better to contact us rather than to wait and see if it gets better on its own, which unfortunately that story we've heard too many times over and over again over the years. Um, but there's so many weaknesses in that way to do it. It's, there, there are problems in terms of sensitivity of tests like Amsler Grid, but also we have no idea about compliance, and compliance is a huge problem. Whereas we'll talk more about the uh, the technology in 4C Home, but we have ways to monitor compliance uh, through the monitoring system. So there's so many advantages uh, that this technology has brought to our practice, and I think intuitively all eye care practitioners should and will um, welcome this new technology uh, into, our, into our clinical acumen. So,
1: Great. Thank you, Barry. Let's talk about patient types here. We know that dry AMD is going to affect more than 10 million people in the U.S., and a certain percentage of those patients have what we consider intermediate AMD. And I think that's an important distinction. Dorothy, what's your definition of intermediate AMD? Because those are the patients really that we're going to want to uh, be prescribing 4C home and referring patients to the Notal Vision Diagnostic Clinic. How do you define that for your patients?
3: Yeah, thanks for that question. You know, I think the research has, has worked this out pretty well for us. The, the the definitions are out there. But you know, the most simple um, definition that I follow and I ask my colleagues to keep in mind is if you see RPE changes in the macula, and A soft ruse, and really, you're in the intermediate zone, right? You're, you now have those high-risk features that warrant careful, mon- not just Ared's vitamins prescription, but that warrants careful monitoring, and has been stated by some others um, in this discussion, we can't monitor patients every week, and we know that CNV can develop randomly at any time in those intermediate patients. Um, so having a tool that allows for monitoring in between those visits get you know really it it reassures me, it reassures the patient that they're being well cared for. Um, but understanding what that definition is and making sure that you as a provider understand that what 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 is considered intermediate AMD is very, very important. Um, you know, I, I do think there are some, some misconceptions um, that if you don't have a, a lot of drusen in the macula that um, you're not at high risk. Um, but really, you really need to pay attention to the strict um, classification and, and make sure you understand that so you're getting the right patient to the right de- device, the right care at the right time.
1: Thanks, Dorothy. And you know i think what i try to teach to my students and colleagues as well is that if you see even a single large drusen in the posterior pole that patient's at risk for progression to advanced disease whether it's geographic atrophy or cnv in the near term so in this intermediate patient that has you know soft drusen like you said or drusen in the presence of rpe changes in the presence of drusen their risk is 50% over the next 5 years of progressing to vision-threatening disease. So I think it's a really important distinction between early AMD and intermediate, and I think we have to step up our game as to how to manage these patients, and certainly home monitoring is part of that algorithm for everyone here. Mary Beth, how do you introduce uh, 4C home to your patients so that they understand the purpose of it and what you're hopeful for in terms of uh, impacting their, their outcome if they are to progress?
4: And just as our colleagues have said, um, you know, the Amsler grid is one of those tests that you give the patient. They take it home and compliance is probably not happening. So what I teach my patients with the 4C home, uh, and I don't talk long on 4C home. I want you to know when the patients in my chair, that chair time is valuable. So um, I tried to be quick with this, but when I introduced it, I try to make it like a game. I tell them, you know, This is uh, gonna take about three minutes per eye. Um, We would love you to do it daily, but no less than four times a week, um, just to give us more data. And it's it's gonna be a fun way for you to kind of monitor your vision. And I think if you set that in the patient's mindset that it's fun and not a chore, they're more likely to do it. I also think that you're gonna get better results. And I think you have to let the patient know too, it's okay to fail. Nobody's gonna do perfectly on this test because one of the things that I think happens with patients when they're given this machine is they get frustrated because they might fail. Well, we're testing threshold with the 4C home device. They need to know it's okay that they miss a point. That's the purpose of it. We're testing how far they can see. So quickly I go over, it's a fun game. You're gonna do it, you know, hopefully daily, but at least four times a week. And um, it's okay if you miss a point or two, keep going and do your best. That's the purpose of this machine.
1: Mary Beth, you've you've talked about how this is, um, you know, you've put a positive spin on it, which I think is good is, you know, we've got something that is a fun way to monitor your vision. I don't use that term exactly myself. I just say, I I look at more safety as like, this is a safety net in between visits so that if something changes, I can make sure that we're getting on it right away but I think we need to take a step back and I want to maybe swing it over to Barry and and just what is happening with the test itself. When we talk about preferential hyperacuity perimetry and 4C home, what does that mean in kind of, you know, not getting too technical about it, but what is the device actually doing? So I'm I'm, going to actually probably
2: not answer your question, which probably you might not like, but the truth of the matter is I don't care. Um, Clinically. Uh, to be very frank with you, it, it, the technical aspect of this is not really critical to my concern. Um, my concern is that we have a technology that's sensitive and the data is out there in picking up the conversion. Uh, it's fairly easy to do. Uh, I can tell you that uh, you know we've done just large numbers of patients and the number of, or percentage of patients who aren't able to uh, qualify for reliable uh, Outcomes is very, very low, thankfully. Um, So I don't get into the technology in terms of how hyperacuity perimetry works. I don't even use that word with patients. I just tell them it's a very simple home-based technique that will allow you to detect the conversion to more serious macular degeneration that's ameliorable to treatment, and it can save your vision. And it's a very simple concept to patients. They are totally frightened about losing vision from AMD. I mean, of all the diseases that we deal with, that is number one in our patient's mind in terms of fear of losing vision because almost all of us and all of our patients know somebody fairly close to them who has suffered from this disease. So I'm sorry I didn't answer your question directly, but honestly, I just don't think it's really a critical point in terms of integrating it into your practice and surely patients have no interest in how the how the uh, technology works. So sorry for not answering your question directly.
1: No, I think I think that is fair, very The the thought that came to me there is our is our friend and colleague Steve Ferrucci at the podium in terms of explaining technologies similar to this. He would say, you know, it just works, and I'm okay with that too. So it just works. You know, it works. You know, it's reliable. We'll get into the clinical data in a little bit. Uh, Dorothy, do you want to take a stab at? explaining to a patient the experience for 4C Home and, and what they're going to be asked to do so that it uh, you can set that expectation up for the patient.
3: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in agreement with Mary Beth. I like to keep it very, very simple. I actually don't get too much into that detail with the patient. My message to them is really simple. It's I want you to have this device to check your vision at home because the condition that you have can change next week, even though you saw me today. So in a very selfish way, I want my patients to know that even though I'm giving them the best care on that day for their condition, that I could still miss this conversion, right? In other words, I could miss what i'm monitoring for um, which is an early conversion to wet macular degeneration and some patients understand the difference between dry and wet Um, and i do try to explain to them because macular degeneration is so prevalent where i am i'm in i'm in new england um, with this just density of northern uh, european descent folks and so they do talk to their neighbor up the road i have lots of retirement communities they know that dry macular degeneration may be okay, wet macular degeneration bad. Um, and they think that they're two different disease um, entities in a lot of cases. So I'm very, very simple on the explanation. I'm like, you need, to t- you need to have this device at home. It's very simple to do. You're gonna stick your head into this little device and you're gonna respond to it and it takes like, you know, very very little time in the course of your day and a really nice person's going to call you on the phone uh, and help you run the test set it up this is going to be so easy um so i don't get in, into any of that quite frankly because i actually have a lot <laughs> I, i'm so happy to be able to say that i'm a hundred percent confident in what happens when i do the handoff to no tall, right i know their technicians are fantastic I know that they understand that their different patients have different needs, um, and and different levels of um, health literacy. And so, yeah, I just keep it simple.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, a good strategy. And and with that in mind, a uh, follow-up, uh, Dorothy, on that. Since it is a simple test and it's you know covered by Medicare generally, and it's just taking a few minutes for a patient to do. Is do you offer this? or prescribe it, rather, to all of your intermediate AMD patients?
3: Yes. So I introduce the technology to all the patients that have intermediate AMD. Um, And, you know, most of them are Medicare patients. Um, I do have some patients that are younger, and so I do have some third-party payers that we have to sometimes solicit um, to have the test covered. But, um, yeah, I offer it to everyone. Most patients will be completely um, enamored, I would say, by the fact that they can monitor their vision at home. Um, There are some patients, I think, that maybe are afraid of the technology or um, don't like technology in general, but quite frankly, um, so many of my patients, if if they come in with a cell phone... This is like a no-brainer, right? Which is all of them, you know? And I, if they have a Kindle or an iPad at home, you know, this is going to be a suggestion. So really, it's a rare patient that resists. Um, I, I do think, as you can imagine, all patients are always worried about coverage. You know, how, how is this going to be paid? Um, and, um, and that's a legitimate concern. But quite frankly, as, as we all know here on this call, um, thankfully, this is something that Medicare reimburses.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I agree, I think that that's the right thing to do, and I would say that I prescribe it for ninety five percent of my intermediate AMD patients with the exception being patients with with dementia or they wouldn't be able to use a mouse and I think you can tell after getting to know these patients which patients are just it's not going to work for, and that's the most common reason but i I go I don't really give them a choice so much you know i, 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 I I introduce it, but I say, this is what I want you to do. And that sort of, this is the best thing I can do to detect change between visits. I want to make sure we're doing everything we can to protect your vision. Patients get it, and you just have to be direct. You know, because of the technology, it just works that it's the right thing to do for the patient. Mary Beth, do you prescribe this, or do you refer all of your patients with intermediate AMD to no Television diagnostic Clinic?
4: I was dying for you to ask because I agree with you 100%. Damon, I started out, re, you know, recommending it to every single intermediate AMD patient, and then I found that there just is a population that it's not suitable for. Those who cannot move their hands well, those who um, have dementia, definitely Alzheimer's. There, it's just for those patients, it became very frustrating, and um, so I've learned better through, you know time and trials with this that it maybe you need to be a little bit more selective in who you choose. I would love for all of them to be able to do it, but the reality is they're probably ones that um, we definitely know aren't able to monitor well at home anyway, um, which is all the more reason why I wish we could. Um, But honestly, I am 100% on your team, Damon. I feel like you have to be a little bit selective with who you choose, but I, I would love to offer it to everybody. Yeah. And I
3: would add that I agree with that. Um, you know, when you say, do I recommend it to 100% of patients, I would qualify 100% of the patients who can, who can perform on the test, right? I think that's a really important qualification.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from No Tall Vision, a patient-centric ophthalmic diagnostic services company extending age-related macular degeneration monitoring from the clinic to the home, providing optometrists with remote diagnostic tools to support their patient care. Managed by the No Tall Vision Diagnostic Clinic, the 4C home program helps detect wet AMD conversion as early as possible.
1: That's go into the the patient conversation. We've talked a little bit about this already. Both the conversation and the process in your office, and we'll start with Barry on this one. Is the patient comes in, maybe you're seeing them for the first time for a comprehensive exam, and then you've done some screening photos, maybe family history of AMD, but then you this patient does, in fact, have an AMD diagnosis, in fact, it's intermediate AMD. conversation look like in terms of when you would introduce NOTAL vision and 4C home? Do you do that at that initial encounter or do you bring them back to have a little bit more significant conversation, especially if it's a new patient diagnosis?
2: That's a really a great lead-in and I really thank you for that um, because we have those conversations all the time. Uh, predominantly, we will do it at that initial visit. Uh, If we've seen what we need to see, we know that at this particular point in time, they don't require any intervention treatment-wise, specifically other than maybe nutraceuticals and that sort of thing, um, lifestyle management. But at that point, we tell them, listen, you are at risk for conversion to a more serious form of the disease, specifically wet macular degeneration. Uh, It's a 30-second elevator speech about this technology. We tell them, we now have technology that you can have at home to take care of watching for any things to go wrong between our visits. It's easy to do, and it's covered by insurance. So our technician will be in in a couple of moments and they're going to set you up to do that. And we have the tech come in, I sign the form, we leave. That is the whole thing. It's just as everybody else said, we're prescribing it. Um, if the patient fails, uh, that's fine, but it's a small percentage. I think that the concept is so easily understood by the patients in terms of the need to do this technology. And as it was mentioned before, The team at Motel Vision is fabulous, right? And we tell them that they're going to be contacted by the company. They will set you up. They will instruct you. They will address any issues that you have. And basically, we're going to know the day that things go wrong. And they will let us know. And immediately, we're going to call you and we're going to bring you back into the office and make sure uh, if we need to intervene that you're going to get the best and most uh, appropriate treatment. So it's it's a quick conversation. It's easy. Uh, people are all about preserving their vision. That's totally what they want to do. And I don't get any pushback from patients. And you guys are right. Surely you have to know what patients would be bad candidates in order to be able to do the uh, test. And Dorothy, you're right. Other than those that you have a real strong feeling couldn't do the test, we recommend it, or we we prescribe it, excuse my expression of recommendation, we prescribe it for all of the patients.
1: Great, and I think that my elevator speech is very similar to yours now, and it really is about 30 seconds. And I I think back a a couple years ago when I started using the technology is, you know, it was more of a minute or two conversation. The nice thing about Notal is they've got a variety of different patient education tools that you can use, including uh, a video that I would show, you know, th- three minute patient journey sort of video. And to be honest, I, I'm so confident in technology and the patient acceptance, and it's very reliable in terms of it. the insurance coverage, is it, now it's a 30 second conversation is exa- almost to the T what you just described. And then I hand it off to the technician to get a little bit of information so we can send that in either via a portal or a fax so that we can get that patient on the technology. Dorothy, how does that compensation or that protocol look in your rural practice with your AMD patients to be able to explain to them why 4C and then how to actually get them um, referred to the diagnostic clinic?
3: Yeah, so I introduce it on the first visit once I've identified that the patient is appropriate and has the, the ability to, to use the test at home. Um, I don't really, I can't, I'm trying to think, you know, is there a reason I would wait until the second visit that that's almost feels impossible unless there's some extraordinary circumstance that just doesn't allow, um, you know, for the conversation to happen in the clinic. But, um, but yeah, I introduce it right out of the gate and I'll be quite frank, you know, it's a practice differentiator. You know, I have a lot of patients that come and see me in my newest location who were cared for by by other providers. And I have to actually spend a little bit more time being respectful of the fact that they've never heard about the technology before. And I'm like, you know, this is relatively new, but this is the latest and greatest, and I want you to have it, and I want you to have it now. Now that we've identified that you're someone at risk for losing your vision, it's not going to happen under my watch. And I'll be
1: the contrarian here a little bit. I know that Dorothy and Barry have said, yeah, I do this on the first visit. I'm still an advocate of genetic testing to help understand what sort of nutritional supplement I should be recommending. So if I have a patient, especially if they've never been diagnosed with AMD before, we know that as soon as we talk about macular degeneration, they may not cure too much after that. So I almost break up the visits a little bit and I'll get all the data I need to make sure that we're taking care of the patient appropriately with OCT photos, et cetera. And I will make a diagnosis, let them know exactly what that means now and what we're going to do to reduce the risk of this ever impacting their life will go over the typical lifestyle modifications. I'll do genetic testing, and then I'll bring them back at like six to eight weeks after, and I'll repeat an OCT. I'll ask them to make sure that they write down any questions they have for me in between visits, and we'll kind of re- go over some things again, get a little bit more imaging. And then at that point, I'll prescribe 4C home because I feel like you know I'm not giving them six months before I see them again. I'm giving them six weeks. And, you know, again, it's evolved a little bit, especially with COVID in terms of just being efficient in the practice. You've got them in the practice now. Maybe you do everything you can. But a lot of patients, especially pre-COVID, is I don't want to lay too much on them at once so that they're not, they're already going to be overwhelmed by that diagnosis in many cases. And I think that, um, again, it's shifted a little bit as we deal with the pandemic. What does that conversation look like in, in Cincinnati Uh, Mary Beth, with your patients, give us your 30-second 4C home elevator speech.
4: So you're right, with COVID, it has been a lot easier to speak on technology like this and to be able to monitor from your home. Um, I'm going to tell you, I split just like you and Dorothy and Barry said. So I'm weird because sometimes I read into the patient and I feel like if they are overwhelmed, then I don't introduce the 4C home device at the initial visit. I, it's a lot to take in and I just want them to know the nutrition first and foremost, and I give them an Amsler grid. And then they, I realize it's easier than to introduce the 4C home device after they've tried to remember to do that. Cause they don't remember to do that. So on the next visit when they're in, I say, you know, I know you're having a hard time remembering to do this, or when was the last time you did your Amsler grid? And it's usually you hear crickets before you hear an answer. And so then I say, I think we need to make sure that we are really watching this. And I do sometimes bring up how the COVID, you know, how we, we're really on lockdown and only were able for two months to bring in those that had changes on their 4C home device. That was the way we did monitor some of the patients. So that conversation now is very easy to say, you know. I want to make sure you're doing this and if we aren't able to see you for any time frame in the future I want to know that you're still having this checked and read you know by specialists and and doctors and on the back side we're going to bring you in if needed even if it is a pandemic because that's now considered urgent and we want to get treatment in your eyes as soon as possible so it is still a very quick little talk but I will tell you my management is very split between how you all do it and I think Every doctor needs to find their own style and what works for their patients, and it might not be streamlined for every patient the way, you know, to talk to them. But that's that's basically the my little take-home speech.
2: I'm going to jump in just for a second and add to what you were just mentioning. Um, in terms of doing it at follow-up, of course, now with telehealth, that becomes another alternative that you can, you know, schedule a follow-up and without a live visit and go over things in a more relaxed environment. We do that for a lot of areas of um, of management, not just in this particular one, where if you wanna have a more extensive conversation, it's very difficult in the office these days, especially not only are we really busy, but you want to make sure patients are in and out under the current circumstances, right? So if you want to have that time to have a more extensive, a more relaxed conversation, allow them to think about questions, we find that uh, setting up telehealth visits really is very useful.
1: Yeah, I think that's really strong recommendation, Barry, and I may have to consider that a little bit more. I've been doing a fair amount of telehealth, but I think that especially these newer patients and we know the ones that, that we make that diagnosis and you know they're going to need some hand holding, you know they're anxious well, maybe let's just schedule a follow-up in a couple of weeks. They can bring their spouse who maybe can't come to the office now so they can hear, or maybe their son or daughter wants to hear what the doctor has to say is I think we can utilize technology to have this patient education and then very quickly pivot to use technology to actually do remote monitoring, which is at the core of what Tall Vision has with 4C Home. What do are, what are your patients say, Barry? I mean- Do you have any great success stories or what's your average patient maybe even that comes in that's using the monitoring? What do they have to say about the technology?
2: Well, in general, the responses have been very positive. They they don't seem to have too many problems. Of course, you know, there are always exceptions. I don't get caught up in the exceptions to the rule because, you know, they're going to happen. Nothing is going to be 100%. it's so interesting to actually go onto the portal and start looking in detail how the patients are performing and seeing how compliant they are. And you, can, <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit because I'm just thinking about this one patient who's pretty much OCD, and uh, you know, like she's doing it every single day and hasn't missed the day. And then you have the others who are kind of a little bit more lackadaisical. You have to remind them, you know, you're not, uh, you're not keeping up with what you need to do or we really need to get those at least for a week done. Um, but the responses have been great. Most importantly, the responses about the team from No Television and the support that the patients are getting. Uh, anytime they have problems, obviously from the onset of setting up through utilization, and then being contacted now via emails with updates about things. I mean, that whole system, which is developing and getting better and better uh, almost every month, um, has been the most impressive part to me. So it's part of a, a very comprehensive approach that all of us are taking in managing these patients from education through advanced technologies in our office and now advanced technologies in the home um, all of these things are part of a comprehensive approach that I think more eye care practitioners need to embrace uh, in this particular area.
1: I couldn't agree more, and it's been nice to see the evolution of what No Vision has done to build out these patient resources and education, and really becomes an extension of your exam room where I can talk about AMD and, and monitoring, but they can reiterate when they contact the patient after we prescribe the device. Why is it so important for us to monitor? Why is early detection so critical to your success? So we don't have to do all of that ourselves. You no know, television has trained people to do that. It makes our lives easier. And I think that has been a big pivot here the last year or two as they've also focused, quite frankly, on, on marketing this technology to optometrists. We know optometrists have you know millions of patients with AMD in, their, in our practices. And I think that it's been very noticeable, like you said, almost every month we get something new that's different or better to make this even more valuable to our patients and to our practice. Dorothy, what do your patients say about the technology? Do they like it? Is it tedious? Is it easy? Is it fun? Is it something that is just part of their routine? How do they describe that when you come and see them for a follow-up visit?
3: I'm not sure I have anyone come in and tell me how fun it is, um, <laughs> but, you know, I feel, you know, they they will very clearly express that they feel like they have a sense of control um, and that this is a, something that allows them to, you know, do a little bit of patient heal thyself. You know, they really like the comfort of knowing that there is a way that they can participate in monitoring their vision at home. I mean, that's pretty much you know, the feedback. Um, you know, I have a, a whole host or a variety of patients. You know, one of my favorite patients is a, a monocular retired physics professor who I had to, I did have to have back for a second visit and call him later on the phone to fully explain exactly how the test works. But, you know, there's always the, these exceptions to the rule. But really, patients are just so thrilled to, 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 um, to have something at home that, that makes them feel like they're, they're doing their part.
1: Great. Yeah, I think that the patient buy-in has been pretty easy. And I would say that was from day one, even thinking back a couple of years ago. Yeah, my process was slightly more involved or was a two or three minute sort of conversation maybe, or we showed them a video. Now it's condensed to about a 30 second and then making a handoff. But patient buy-in is huge because, um, and obviously my enthusiasm for the device based on the results that I'm seeing in patient engagement, patients understand that it works, that I wouldn't recommend it unless I thought it was the best thing for them. And I think it's a it's a pretty darn easy conversation now. So I think it's important to briefly review, you know, why 4C home? Why did this get approved for patients with intermediate AMD? There was actually part of the ARIS-2 trial that looked at patients that were having exams every six months, and then maybe they were doing an Amsler or something at home versus patients prescribed the 4C device and they wanted to see the patients that converted from dry to wet what was their what was their acuity when that diagnosis was made standard of care versus 4C and it was actually found that 94% of patients if they were using the 4C home as prescribed if they converted to wet AMD their acuity was actually 20/40 or better and that was 50% more than patients in the standard care I arm mean, there was actually strong enough data that the researchers said it would be unethical for us to continue this trial because the results were so favorable for the 4C home technology in terms of outcomes that we just, it doesn't make sense for us not to offer this to all of the patients. So with that in mind, and obviously that's strong data to be able to get, you know, coverage for this uh, device and to have the confidence to recommend this to really all of our, or nearly all of our intermediate AMD patients. Mary Beth, why do you think that this has not yet become the standard of care, or honestly, do you think that this is now going to be the standard of care going forward in management of uh, intermediate AMD? Um,
4: It's a loaded question. I think that understanding that not everybody is going to convert into wet AMD is a big piece of this puzzle too. When people are taking this test and they come in with a an alert, um, that no-tell uh, is actually looking on the back end and then sending to the doctor the information that there is alert. So the doctor is not always, mon- this is not on the doctor's shoulders. But just when that patient comes in with an alert, I do think it's important to recognize that a lot of the times there's not going to be a wet change. And I think that it's important to recognize and Point out to the patient those small changes as well that they may not have noticed. Uh, I just want to give you a real quick summary of like what my data was because I know it better than studies. Um, So I did 100 patients and I on the television 4C home and I was really going through and saying you know why is it that the MDs and I'm going to be quite honest the ophthalmologists I work with maybe don't buy into this as much And the technology that is, and that's because they're looking for all those to turn into wet. And I think the big thing for standard of care for intermediate macular degeneration in the hundred patients I did in my first year, and this is just my data, about forty percent of those um, patients came in and they really had changes in their vision, and they were actually more towards the wet form. I'm sorry, the dry form of macular degeneration, you know, and so. It probably was even more than that, but you have to remember I'm in a clinic with already very high-risk patients because we're a referral site. Um, you know, 10% of the patients were not able to do the test. That was when I was still learning how and who to choose for the testing. And then those that turned into wet, you know, we had about maybe not quite 60%, but there there is a percentage that turns into wet. And those numbers are very skewed. Again, I'm in a very different clinic setting. Now imagine using that in private practice you want to be able to show those numbers to the patients and make them understand on your own on your own standards even how this has affected your practice and maybe why you would want to continue to use this technology, because it is a little bit of a time in uh, management. But I think it's important to point out that managed care, like the standard of care, I think this is a great tool to use for the standard of care because it does catch things so much earlier because it does catch changes that the patient's not recognizing. Um, you know. If they come in and they really are not noticing that they have a change in vision, but they've dropped two lines on the chart right there's First, your, you know, your information, you can always do an OCT. Autofluorescence is my jam, I love autofluorescence. They really show where you know there's changes that other people might not be able to show. Um, and then also, if you're lucky enough to have fluorescein angiogram, you can show the changes on there as well to the patient. Because again, remember, it's not always going to be about a wet conversion as much as a change in vision and managing the dry continuing going forward.
1: I think a lot of insight there and I want to ask Dorothy about this too and get her take is if someone's having home monitoring and they get an alert, what happens and then how does that, how is that patient managed in your office?
3: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I agree with Mary Beth. I think, you know, one of the questions that we're always challenged with in practice, and there's a reason we call it practice because the more you do it, the, the you hope the better that you get. You know, right now, I, I strongly feel that this should be part of the standard of care of taking care of patients at a minimum with intermediate macular degeneration um, because we don't have as much information as maybe we would like on who those specific individuals are that might convert, right? And so that's what standard of care is about. I mean, you know, standard of care is just that. It's a guideline. You have to individualize that to your patients. But having said that, this is a visually devastating disease and we now have really good studies such as the one that you mentioned earlier that make it very, very clear for those patients who do convert, the detection is so much earlier it would be crazy for us not to, pre- it would be, you know, you know, right up in there with unethical not to prescribe the device. I'm a big fan of, of looking for The genetic correlates and testing patients in that regard in the office, as as you mentioned yourself. But we still have a ways to go in zeroing in on who specifically are those patients. And one day we will actually be able to identify those patients with much more precision. You know, we've all heard that term precision medicine. It's a real thing, it's coming. But until we get there and until we refine algorithms, until we can really truly individualize medical care, we have to look at what is the cost benefit of this, right? What is the cost benefit to that individual patient and to society? I mean, vision loss is an $80 billion, um, you know, dollar take. Um, You know, comparing that to the cost of... potentially overprescribing um, a continuous care device. You know, I think that's the ultimate question that we have to ask in our, in our individual practices and as, as professionals who um, are the ones that have been challenged with, with um, advocating for, for saving vision. To answer your specific question, which I may have forgotten by now, after, <laughs> um, as you can tell this is a subject that I'm passionate about, um, you know, the process is um, really simple for patients. Um, you know, if you, I, I actually, I'll, I'll give you an example of a patient that actually con- had a positive hit, right? So they had a positive hit, but they didn't actually have a conversion to wet macular degeneration. So I got the call, I got the email alert, um, then I got another um I think I've, cho- you know, there's like different ways you get alerted, and I'm like, oh, this is fantastic, um, and this was actually a patient who I always have in my mind, who I was very worried about, um, and it just turned out, you know, and I called her, and I called her on the phone, and she was out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean sailing with her husband. I'm like, fabulous, but get off the boat. She's like, no, no, I was really bad. You know, I, I, it was me. I know it was me. I didn't do the test right, and I kind of didn't follow through, and I know I was doing it inaccurate, I'm fine. I'm not getting off my boat. (laughs) So, you know, you're going to have those things happen, right? All technology is still dependent on the human interface, um, at least for now. And, but, you know, having said that and using that outlier example, you know, when you get an alert, um, it's a serious thing. And what a, a fabulous opportunity to follow up whether it's a true positive or not. And I would say those are definitely the exceptions to the rule. This is not, you know, uh, an untested technology. It's it's highly accurate. Yeah, you can have
1: disease progression and it still be dry and it's going to show up on that test. That doesn't mean that, you know, if someone comes in and there's an alert, It's always a good thing because we've detected progression, we're going to manage it appropriately. If it's progression and it's dry and they don't need to have an injection, even better. If they've converted to wet, we're going to catch them much earlier. And I think that, you know, that makes me feel really good about offering this in my my practice. And that's really what I want to have our final topic about is does it does offering technology like this in your practice, is this a potential practice builder? I mean, there's not any direct revenue. Coming into a practitioner for prescribing, forcing home or referring patients to the diagnostic clinic. But Barry, what what does it mean to a practice to be able to embrace something like this in terms of just the outlook of your practice and, and what your patients think about uh, what you have to offer?
2: For sure, I agree with you, Dave. It, it is a perception issue here as well, and all of us on the call tonight, I think kind of practice, even though our practice environments are different, I think philosophically we must be very, very similar, and we're really into advanced technologies where the early adapters were the innovators, and so we bring technology into our practice, and it tends to define the practice, and I truly believe at our practice, many patients are at our office because they believe they're getting cutting-edge care whether it's the technology we use or the treatment modalities that we uh, prescribe for patients. So I think this is critical. And as I've mentioned a number of times tonight, it is a critical part of a comprehensive approach to the management of age-related macular degeneration. And we, too, incorporate genetic testing. We, too, also measure levels of protective photopigments and prescribe appropriate supplements uh, we have the OCT, we have the um, you know all of the technologies um, that are important in, in the management of these diseases, and I do believe this is critical. The issue of standard of care, I think that that ties right in with the company's now dedication to bringing this out to optometry i kind of consulted to a bunch of folks at the company over the past number of years that I thought they needed to do that way at the beginning. And their, you know, their approach towards a retina specialists might have been a lot of work with uh, not as much return. Although I surely approve and appreciate that if we get buy-in from our retina specialists, it makes our life a little easier. But I think to create standard of care, we're going to have to get this into the hands uh, or at least awareness of lots and lots of optometrists, and I think it will resonate with many, many of us in our profession, and then it will become standard of care, I believe.
1: That's great, and I think the retina specialist buy-in is mixed, you know, I think it depends what part of the country you're in, but I do know that retina specialists like optometrists like having great outcomes, and they would much rather cheat a 2020, 2025 wet AMD than have a patient that's 80 or 2,200 before they start getting their injections. I think we can all get on board with this. Um, final thoughts, Dorothy, in terms of the technology and its importance to AMD management going forward?
3: Yeah, you know, I'll just underscore again that, you know, I, I think this is the future. Um, I think this is the way that we will care for patients, not just with macular degeneration, but perhaps even with other disease stets, states that threaten Central or macular vision. So, I'm excited that we've brought this into our practice. I have great comfort in um, uh, the fact, knowing the fact that my patients have access to the latest technology, and I, I really look forward to um, to you know the next generation uh, iteration of
4: of this. Quite frankly,
1: yeah, um, exciting stuff. Mary Beth, final thoughts.
4: You know, I didn't get a chance to comment on how great the company is to work with, so I want to go back and circle to that. They really do make it easy. The only way I would ever be able to um, continue recommending this tool is if it was as easy as just saying, look, there's somebody reputable on the other end of the phone, and if you ever have questions, call them, because... Um, that means the world to me to know that this technology is so accurate. It's great. I mean, it will even catch like an if an epiretinal membrane is present in macular degeneration. You know, be on the lookout. It might be the epiretinal membrane that the actual machine is catching too. Just it's that accurate. And I do again. I want to just say that the people behind the scenes are just really great at caring for our patients, just as you would hope they'd be cared for. So I hope this is you know moves forward and continues to move forward. And I look for great things from this company too. Thanks for having me
1: on board. Yeah, it's been great working with us all, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk with uh, my forward thinking colleagues on this uh, session. And it's a great thing for our patients. It's a great thing for our practice. We all want better outcomes. We have great agents if someone does convert to wet, but we got to find those patients. We got to find them early. And we know that that baseline acuity when they come in is actually gonna predict their acuity over the next five years when they start therapy. So I really think this technology um, that has become standard of care in our practices, hopefully will become standard of care throughout optometry as people understand the importance of early detection and home monitoring. So thank you everybody, it's been a great uh, chat and I look forward to future conversations.